I honestly think that the more our net worth has grown, the more we've just learned to be content. Like there's no chasing the Joneses or comparison to other people. Like we just kind of stay in our own lane. We're just simple folk that are happy with what we have and appreciative of it. Cause we obviously realize like this could be taken away or a health scare could happen. Or, you know, my husband did a couple tours um, of Iraq and Afghanistan. And so, I mean, he easily could have lost a limb or lost his health. And so we just try to be content with, you know, with what we have. And I think that's where a lot of people, a lot of people struggle is they think, Oh, I'll just get to this million or, Oh, I'll get to 1.5 and then I'll be happy. And you really just have to learn to enjoy the journey along the way. Like there's just not a magic bullet that says when you wake up tomorrow and you have a million dollars or a paid off home that you're suddenly going to be happy. Like you really just have to learn to be content with, with the journey. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 216. Clark, what's going on, man? How you doing? Dude, doing pretty well. What's going on with you? Man, just getting ready for the Christmas festivities here shortly and year in, you know, it's a great time of year. Some of my favorite time of year. What about you? Yeah, the best time of the year, right? Yeah, same here. I'm here. We'll be going out to uh, Utah to visit family here at the end of the month. So excited about that. Awesome. See, they can get some snow out there. <laughs> yeah, right. No kidding. Y- y'all got a little bit of flurries up there, didn't you? New York? I think so. Yeah, but yeah. I want less snow here and more snow there. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. But if, you get, if you're getting snow up there, getting snow out there, and I think some of the resorts are open. They also, they're so sophisticated in their snowmaking abilities now, too. So you. You know, you don't. You might not even know that it's fake snow. <laughs> Probably <laughs> true. Probably true. So we got a, an email this last week uh, from Stacy regarding a gap fund. Somebody that basically wants to retire early, but you know, when, when we say retire early, we're saying retire before they've access to their retirement accounts. So before the age of fifty nine and a half, and how they bridge that time period between, you know, let's just say 50 or 55 and 59 and a half and they can access those. So Clark, what's, what's your take? What have we seen from millionaires on how to bridge that gap? And then also, you know, taking care of insurances. Yeah. So Stacy, thanks for writing in. And, and that's exactly the question. And also what do you do for insurance after you quit your job? Um, you know, insurance, I think we've talked about a couple of times, you got the Christian health share planning, but most of it, people are just buying on the market. The other thing that we've seen are, are people will take a job at like, a government job working 10, 15, 20 hours a week just for the benefits. So a couple options there. If you could take a city job, you know, be a librarian or volunteer somewhere and get benefits that way is kind of what we've seen too. But in terms of the gap fund, I think most of our millionaires, or I know most of our millionaires have both money in there, in the market, in their retirement accounts, and then money outside of the market. So once you start maxing out your 401ks, Roth IRAs, if you got the SEP IRA or whatever, you know, all these different things, if you work for the government, you're going to have a different account. But most people are putting money in those retirements and in just a traditional investment account. So nobody that we've really, or very few that we've talked to have very, very high just cash sitting there, right? Like 50, hundreds of thousands of dollars just sitting in cash. If they have that much cash, they go take that money and put it into a traditional investment account. And I think that's what they would live off of in in this situation here. Admittedly, a lot of them also have rental income. 
right? Rental income that, that they can use and live off and, and they've created passive income that way. What else do we see, Jace? Yeah, I think those are the main things. You know, I think part of the, the, the reason for this question and, and the question that comes up amongst most early retirees is, one, it's a little bit of a leap, right? Like it's it's new. It's something you haven't explored. And we've had several early retirees on the show. And it's funny, a lot of them say, well, I'm wealthier now. I retired sooner. I'm living on way less than I thought I would, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you can never plan enough for that unknown. And so I think just building out, you know, the insurance and the risk of what could happen. The, the, the big unknown for most of us is, well, what happens if portfolios drop by 20 or 30%? And I think that's something that, that you've got to take into account. And I think some people that we've seen retire early will have maybe a year's, you know, spending in, in cash at the most or at least six months that'll give them comfort that, hey, if their portfolio did drop by 20%, would they still be able to carry out that plan? But, you know, the other thing that some of the retirees have told us is, you know what, I'm not really worried that I can't get a job again because I leave the workforce. I think that's a big fear a lot of people have. And in some professions, professions, it probably makes sense, right? Like you may not be able to enter certain professions again if you leave or you lose your network, but there's always going to be jobs. It may not pay exactly what you were making before. Or, you know, the pay scale may be different, but I think there's so many more ways to supplement income than, you know, our, our parents' generation had, right? Like if you want to go make 20, 25 bucks or, you know, 15 bucks an hour or whatever, I mean, there are so many options between driving for Uber or driving as a delivery driver for, for DoorDash or all these different, being a Walmart greeter. I mean, there are so many different options and even some online that, that you can do from your house, you know, if you've got physical limitations or whatever. So I think that and that gig economy has really opened up the the uh, the bank in a way where you know maybe if you do leave traditional work that hey if something doesn't go as planned there's still going to be opportunities for you to go back and earn some income if you have to and I think that's you know the mindset of some of these retirees taking on that other than hey I've got my portfolio here you know I've structured it I've done the best I can I've stress tested it twenty percent drop I'm fine for you know however many years or whatever and taking that leap you know we hear it time and time again that. You can always earn more money, but you can't really buy more time. So I think that's, you know, from what we've seen, that's basically the, the gist that I would offer up. Okay. So this week we have Danielle. She's in her early thirties, married with four-year-old twins, net worth 1.3 million. She's a CPA. We discuss career management, investing, and all sorts of other interesting topics. It's going to be a great interview. Super excited to have this uh, interview with Danielle. Last week we had Derek. His net worth was 1.1. He's in the military, currently lives overseas. He had about 95% in mutual funds and stocks, a little bit of crypto and some cash. Talks about making over 200K in crypto, which ended up also being part of a, a Bitcoin con Ponzi scheme. So interesting interview with him, especially if we've seen more and more of our millionaires have a little bit of crypto in their portfolios recently. Uh, go check that out. That's episode number 215. Appreciate you tuning in to the show week after week. I uh, just wanted to read a, a, a review that we received. This comes from Martinov. Totally enjoy your podcast. Would like to hear one that grew up in Latin America and been, became an EDM from scratch. So that's our call. Can we get somebody from Latin America? Anybody knows anybody? We'd love to, to have you on your show. It's a request from one of our listeners, Mark Nove. Appreciate you leaving that review. Uh, also, if you'd like to ask a question, millionaires, we've got SpeakPipe on the website as well. You can write us an email like Stacy did today. We'll try to get to it uh, or, or shoot it to a few 
uh, millionaires than it may be applicable for uh, when we do these interviews. So, without any further delay, let's get into the episode with Danielle. Danielle, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Yeah. So, my name's Danielle. I'm married with uh, twin boys that are about four years old. Um, we live in the state of Texas, where we recently settled uh, about a year ago. So I'm 33 years old, and my husband and I have uh, have amassed a net worth of about 1.3 million dollars. Um, so kind of just have done that over time with consistent savings and investing in the market. So I work in accounting, and my husband is actually uh, since since getting out of the military about a year ago, my husband now stays home with our two boys um, until they're ready to head off to school. So that's kind of our current situation. That's awesome. So 1.3 and you're in your early 30s, you're a pretty young millionaire. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, definitely one of those uh, one of those geeks in high school. I really enjoyed, you know, my, my business classes and somebody explained compound interest to me and I was kind of kind of hooked on it. I remember as a as a sophomore in high school, I sat through a Edward Jones seminar and they ran some of those compound interest calculations and talked about, you know, putting money into the stock market. And ever since then, I was just kind of hooked on it. And I've always been a, we, me and my husband have always been pretty good savers. So just tried to live uh, on, on less than we make and just, you know, keep consistently saving over time. Totally. So let's get into the, the breakdown a little bit. How is the 1.3 broken up? Yeah. So kind of at like a, a high level, we've got 401k and Roth's account between <clears throat> Roth accounts between the two of us that total about $710,000. Um, and then we've got um, equity in our primary residence of about $170,000. Um, we've got a taxable brokerage account that's about $250,000. We've got a small, small uh, HSA that's worth about $10,000. We've got a 529 account for our children that totals about $123,000. Um, and then the, the rest is in cash. So we've got about um, $50,000, $55,000 in cash um, right now. Okay. So the the retirement account is a pretty substantial amount, especially for somebody who's in their early 30s. Is that something that you and your husband have maxed out ever since you graduated college? Yeah. So, uh, my husband actually didn't go to college. He chose a career in the military, but my, my 401k, I guess if I, I back up just a little bit, I was, I worked my way through college. So I was pretty fortunate to, um, to be able to pay cash for that as I went. It seemed like the, the scholarships really dried up after the first year of school. And then once I got through that, I was just able to work my way through college, pay cash for it every semester. So what that afforded me is once I got through college, I was able to not have student loan payments. So then I could, you know, heavily or aggressively invest um, in retirement in my 401k as soon as I was able to land my first job. So one of the, the best pieces of advice I got from a, a young age was to max that uh, 401k out as soon as possible. Um, and then I also started my Roth when I was in college as well. So that's got about 13 years worth of you know, maxed out contributions in there. Um, and then my husband kind of got <clears throat> a little bit later of a start. So I don't, I mean, he invested some in retirement, but we didn't, I mean, we probably didn't start up his Roth until he was, you know, early, early thirties, mid thirties. So he's 41 now. So he really has only had, um, a Roth going for like the last probably five, maybe six years. So yeah, I was able to get a, a good jump on that and luckily started 
uh, had the ability to sock away as much as possible early on to let that grow. Yeah, totally. So do you have any idea roughly what the amount that you've contributed versus the amount of gain in that account? Huh, that's a that's a great question. I should have prepared for that. Um I've I've evaluated it and checked it at at time. It seems like um the Roth, let's just do some quick math here. That yeah, Roth. Yeah, I mean probably, if you've maxed it out every year for what yeah. call it ten, eleven years. Yeah. So let's just So say you're probably two hundred in maybe, two hundred and twenty. Uh, Plus whatever yeah. match you might have got. So call it maybe yeah. 250. Yeah. And then so my 401k today is worth uh, of that 711 that I quoted to you. My 401k in that is probably four 410. So I would say it's probably half contribution and then the rest would be the discretionary contribution that I get. Um, and then the rest would be the gains on that. So it's it, it feels like it's finally starting to hit the point where it's actually, you know, the the, the gains are starting to exceed the contributions that we've put in. And then a portion of that 401k too would also be a, a Roth 401k that was a little bit new at, at work over the last couple of years. And since they introduced that, I've kind of been um, changing my strategy to put a little bit more into the, the Roth 401k as opposed to just the traditional 401k. Cause I, I kind of believe that with, you know, this much time on my side that it's going to grow to a pretty hefty sum. And I'd like for that to be tax free growth as much as possible, but maybe I'll change that strategy later in life. Is that something that you just barely changed in the last year or two? I would say it's probably been in the last, yeah, probably three or four years. It seems like it's been a relatively new thing that was introduced, but I just really enjoy, I know a lot, there's probably a lot of discussion about, you know, lower tax, lower your taxable income now because, um, you know, taxes are going to be higher in the future. But I really just believe get the taxes paid and out of the way now and then let that thing grow tax-free. So that's why I've kind of always hit the the Roth pretty hard. And then now with the introduction um, at work of the Roth 401k, I think it's a pretty, pretty neat idea. And I'd like to get on board with that. Yeah. And you've, for this whole time, you've also contributed to a, a Roth outside of your 401k, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I contributed to a Roth IRA now for 13 years. So I started when I was 20 and I'm 33 now. So yeah, that'll, that's probably 13 years, 14 years going on in 2021. And you've maxed those out as well? Yep, that's correct. Wow, that's pretty remarkable. Is there anything that would change the way that, that you go about that? Or do you think you'll continue to max those accounts out as, as long as you can? I think as long as I can, I will continue down that path. I think that's my strategy for now is to stay with that. I, th- I think for now I'm pretty content with how that looks and I'll just keep maxing them out and filling them up as, as best as possible. Now, the money that you have invested in a brokerage account, is that for an early retirement purpose or what's your strategy there? <laughs> not really a great strategy there. I'm not I'm not 100% sold on early retirement. I, I really enjoy my career. Um, I have a lot of variety um, with what I presently do. Um, it still checks enough boxes on the, you know, do I enjoy this? So, you know, early retirement for me, just as somebody that kind of has a hard time, you know, relaxing or just chilling out, I, I don't really know what early retirement looks like for me. And plus, I've got young kids. Um, so I'd, I'd kind of like to keep working 
as long as possible, at least for the foreseeable future. So that taxable brokerage is kind of just just there to to be there in case of a rainy day fund or in case of, you know, God forbid something happens. Um, just so so for now, it's not really earmarked for any specific purpose. It's just kind of savings for the sake of savings. So it's it's not I wouldn't say that it's necessarily an early retirement account, but who knows? It, it could be in, you know, the next 10 years of the tides change. Yeah. So the between the retirement and the brokerage account, are those invested in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, index funds? Pretty heavily weighted towards uh, mutual funds and index funds. So, I mean, there's a little bit of um, a little bit of bond in there just to kind of offset the the equities, but not much. So we we tend to lean more towards um, index funds for for our investing purposes. And has that always been the case? Uh, well, early on, I thought I would try and do my hand at you know picking stocks, but I wasn't very good at that. So. <laughs> I, I thought, you know, more consistent, just, you know, average cost investing with uh, mutual funds and index funds was a more reliable way to do my investing so that I didn't have to have, you know, analysis paralysis. So for the most part, we just stick with our, um, you know, equity mutual funds or index funds and call it a day. Do you have any stock winners or stock picks that, you, that made the bank or, or the ones that really killed you? No, I, you know, when I was younger, I thought I, oh, I'm, you know, have an accounting degree, I should know how to pick stocks. And it's like, this, that's, this is for the birds, I'll just stick with, you know, an index fund and call it a day. But, you know, over the last year, I mean, hindsight's 2020. But over the last year, obviously, you know, the Googles and the Amazons and the Teslas have done amazing. So I'd love to sit here and say, oh, yeah, I, you know, picked those and bought them at, you know, $10 a share, but that didn't happen. So I don't have anything, (laughs) anything fun like that. Yeah. Do y'all have any debt? Uh, we have a mortgage on our house. So that is at a, the balance of the mortgage is about $160,000. Um, and so we recently refinanced it down to a 3% interest rate. So we're not really super aggressive with, with paying that off. We're, we're kind of, you know, okay with the, the leverage and we'd rather be chunking more into the market right now as opposed to paying down 3%. Uh, mortgage debt, but we have been completely debt free at one point um, when we lived in a, a less expensive house. Um, you know, we had a mortgage payment, plus we had two kids in daycare while my husband and I worked full time. And I just really felt like, man, we're kind of strapped each month and not able to hit our savings goals. So let's just go ahead and pay off um, the mortgage. So we, we have been mortgage free and completely debt free, but um, at this point, we're still carrying a, a mortgage on the primary house. But otherwise, you know, we haven't had a car payment. And I think my husband and I were talking about it. And it's probably been about six years. So I mean, we, you know, we've never carried credit card debt. My husband didn't go to college. So he didn't have student loans. And I was able to cash flow my way through college. So I didn't come out of college with um with those student loans. So that's been that's been a huge part of it, too. Because when you don't have to make those debt payments each month, then you're kind of just left with you know, covering the monthly bills and then stashing it away in savings. Yeah, totally. Daniel, do you invest your HSA at all? Uh, yeah, the HSA is invested. So it's, it's got a pretty small balance of only about $10,000. And I think we're required to leave like a, a thousand in cash. Um, so the other $9,000 invested in just a, you know, plain Jane index fund. So it's invested, but obviously that's not making up much of our, our net worth. Yeah, totally. And I'm assuming same with the 529s. Yeah, the 529s are invested in a um, just a VTSAX fund. Um, so those are invested in, in just in just one fund, actually. So 
Okay. I want to get into to these a little bit just because it's one of the higher balances we've seen, especially at your age. What is your mindset in terms of that balance? Do you continue to contribute to it? Do you think that that's enough? I mean, you mentioned your boys are four, so they've got, what, another 12 to 14 years before they're going to be kind of looking at college and then looking at what that cost might be. What is Where's your head at as, as it relates to that balance and what that balance needs to be or what you would like it to be going forward for them? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. We obviously, you know, with the boys being four, we're not for sure if they will make it to college or <laughs> if, you know, that sounds like something of interest to them. Um, but our plans here in our house are to presume that our, our kids will be going to college. And so we'd rather save for it and not need it or maybe have to repurpose it as opposed to looking up and our kids are 18 um, and we're not able to put them through college. So I, you know, I shared with you that I had cash flowed my way through college because my, my parents didn't go to college. And so when I went to college, they were kind of like, okay, see you later. You're on your own. Like there wasn't really a discussion about it or any sort of consideration of help. So it was just kind of a, you know, in hindsight, it seems kind of unusual or weird that that's sort of how the whole thing went down. And so our plan, once the boys were born, is we said, okay, we're going to put money into these. You know, we wanted to put a couple grand in them per year or get them built up as soon as possible so that compound interest was was on their time or was on our side. Because I know, you know, the popular thing to do is let's put a couple thousand dollars in it each year until the kids are, you know, 15 or all the way up until a kid's ready to go to college. But my thought was, if I can front load these then I don't need to put as much in it and I can kind of get that out of my way or check it off my list. So I had mentioned earlier that at one point we were completely debt-free even with the house. And so to about two years ago, what happened was we were ready to move um, and we had a paid off house. And so I kind of came up with the idea or the strategy of, hey, you know, mortgage rates are pretty cheap right now. It's not really that great of a a time to be mortgage free. Let's take the cash out of this house and let's put it into the boys 529 accounts. So we'll just use round numbers. We had a house that was worth $150,000 that we own free and clear. And what we did was we took proceeds from the sale of that house of about 80 and we put it into the boys' 529 accounts or somewhere in that ballpark because we kind of said we wanted 40 in each account. So what we were looking at then was, you know, the boys were two, two and a half, I think, when we did this transaction. And so we put about 80 in there total. And then over the last year, year and a half, it's grown by about $40,000. So we kind of said, you know, 40, 45 per account, like that's that's what we're going to do. And then we'll just let them grow for the next 14-ish years. And whatever they make it to, great. If we need to repurpose it or if we've saved too much, we'll, you know, assign different beneficiary. But our plan now is to be done contributing to those accounts and just let it ride. So it's got about, I think about 85, maybe 80, somewhere in that ballpark, $85,000 worth of contributions. And then the rest is just um, unrealized gains on those accounts. Wow, that's awesome. All right, let's take a quick break from the episode with Danielle and talk about today's sponsor. Public.com is basically like Robinhood, Twitter, and Reddit had a baby. Imagine that, Clark. So anyway, we know how difficult it is for people to get started in investing. There's so many different platforms. There's so many different barriers, all sorts of things of all vying for your money, especially when you're trying to get into cryptocurrency, which we've had a lot of millionaires get into recently. And there's only so many ways you can do it. 
In public.com, you can start with small slices of shares and invest what you believe in in any amount. It's interesting because you can kind of get insights from the community and other people on what they're doing, kind of like people posting on Reddit, their portfolios and screenshots of their thing. You get that on public. Public's made it easy for us to learn about these things, whether it be crypto or ETFs or other stocks. When you're investing on public.com, you're never investing alone. Connect with other investors from all walks of life and gain new ideas, understanding, and confidence to make your investments your own. Start investing with as little as $1 and get a free slice of stock up to $50 when you join public.com today. Visit public.com slash unveiled to download the app and sign up using code unveiled. That's public.com slash unveiled and code unveiled. Valid for U.S. residents 18 and older subject to account approval. See public.com slash disclosures. This is not investment advice. With that, let's get back to the episode with Danielle. So I want to get into your profession, your career path a little bit. You mentioned you you work in public accounting and you and I had a little discussion before we started that there's a lot of stereotypes out there about accountants with money. Where would you say most people in that profession and other professions that you, that you work around in your job go wrong as it relates to handling of money? Oh, man. I I think a lot of them try to honestly keep up with the Joneses. Like if I if I had to kind of pinpoint maybe one problem, you can you can kind of see it. Like when the new hires roll up, they, you know, see what the partners are maybe driving or wearing or what they live in. And they instantly start putting some of that pressure on themselves. Like you've got a, an intern or a new hire that's making, you know, $50,000 a year. And they suddenly see like everybody's driving a Range Rover or a Lexus or whatever it is that, you know, people are driving. And then from there on out, they kind of feel like, oh, I, you know, I shouldn't live in an apartment with a roommate or I need uh, name brand clothes or I need a name brand bag or, or something to carry my laptop in. And I need to, you know, give the appearance because, you know, we're in a professional, you know, client service industry. So we have to look the part. But I just think maybe from the get go is they they try and compare themselves to somebody that's been, you know, in public accounting or, or making a considerable amount of money for, you know, 20, 30 years, and they're just not on that level. And then kind of the, the hamster wheel starts at that point where, you know, they're, they're coming out of college with student loans, too. And so they, they don't have that cash flow necessarily right off the bat to, you know, make some of those purchases that they that they might be making to keep up with some of the other more senior folks. And then, you know, from a attorney or, you know, physician or other, you know, accounting profession world, I think a lot of times people incorrectly assume, oh, you're in accounting, you must be good with numbers, or you're in finance, you must be good with numbers. And that's just not always the case. I don't think necessarily that personal finance translates over to, you know, being a good accountant. I just don't think sometimes those are interchangeable. Yeah. Do your peers at work or or the people that you associate with know of your wealth? No, definitely not. It's a it's a very taboo subject. You don't talk about it. You it's just not something that's really shared openly. I mean, there's maybe like one or two that when you know the day, I remember the day I became or the day our net worth passed a million dollars passed a million dollars. I you know texted one of my my good colleagues and told her, and she just was like, "Oh wow, that's cool." But like otherwise, like no you know no reaction or anything like that. So it's just definitely not something. That, that gets talked about. And I don't, I don't know. I think sometimes too, like in the financial independence community, everybody kind of 
seems like they don't really like their job. So they're trying to, you know, work and stash away all this money so that they can eventually quit their job. And that's, that's not ever really been a, you know, a, a goal of mine. Like I'm not in this to then turn around and, and quit my job because I, I do enjoy my job and it gives me something to do. It gives me purpose. It allows me to, you know, use my brain and, and, and learn more. So it's, it's never really been something I'd say openly discussed. It, it just feels very taboo. Yeah, totally. So that call you mentioned that, that you told, had you had that discussion with her before? Did you know where she was at or was that just kind of out of the blue? You had a good relationship with her? Yeah, she uh, she's, she's kind of the opposite of me. She's just a good friend of mine and, you know, she she makes good money, but she spends good money. So, I mean, she she's I think it maybe caught her by surprise because she's my age. And so, you know, that maybe was in. So we, we, you know, make comparable amounts and we're the same age. We have the same amount of kids. So there's a little bit of probably comparison there. And I, you know, she always knew I was a big money nerd and like personal finance and all that stuff. But I, I think it probably surprised her to know like, holy cow, like she's got a, a million dollars at our age. So I think that might have shocked her a little bit, but she doesn't, you know, it's not like it separated us or anything. Yeah, totally. So, Danielle, as you look back on your journey, you started vesting so young. Obviously, very few people know about this. Was there anything that your parents instilled in you to, to invest? Yeah, I know you mentioned that Edward Jones or, 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 or brokerage compounded interest that you learned. But obviously, there had been some, some lessons from some people that were instilled. Were those from your parents? And, and if so, what were they? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's, it's actually quite, quite the opposite. I grew up, uh, my parents are farmers. And so we kind of grew up in a rural community. And, um, it's funny. I was just sharing with my husband, you know, earlier this weekend. I was like, I, I don't even think my parents invest. Like, I don't remember any discussions with them growing up about the stock market or index funds or mutual funds. I mean, it, it literally like their entire net worth is, is, is wrapped up in, you know, tractors and combines and, and cattle. So it's kind of almost the, the opposite. And I kind of saw maybe money as like a source of you know, like tension or just contentious between my parents. Like my, my dad was a farmer and my mom was a stay at home mom. And I just kind of felt like maybe there wasn't like a good relationship with the, with money. I mean, it, it never felt like, you know, with a, with a salary, like with a salary from a, a regular job, you know exactly how much is going to come home every two weeks. But with farming, it's quite the opposite. It's like, Oh shoot, it rained or it hailed or, you know, the, the fence broke and the cows got out. So we don't know how much money we're going to make. And I guess that probably made me feel in easy or maybe have a bit of a, a scarcity mindset when it came to money. But I, I don't recall any discussions at all with my parents about, you know, the market or how to build wealth or any, anything like that. It was, it was almost quite the opposite. And I mean, even, even to this day, I don't, I don't think my parents do invest. I don't think that they have any money in the market. I think all of their, you know, retirement is probably tied up in farm equipment and animals and land and maybe oil rights. So it's just quite, kind of quite the opposite of what I've done. So just going off of that, are are your parents going to be okay and your husband's parents going to be okay for retirement? Is that something you worry about at all? Well, that's a that's a great question. My husband's dad is a very aggressive investor and he has been a, a huge champion for us in, you know, talking through investments or, you know, contributing funds to the stock market. I mean, 
he's 74 years old and he is ingressed invested super aggressively. He owns um, lots of tech stocks for a, a person of that age. And so he's, he's always kind of busting me for saying you're not invested, invested aggressively enough. You guys need to buy more individual stocks. And he kind of dismisses <laughs> index fund investing and says, that's <laughs> not really investing. So, you know, um, it's, it's not very fun to share net worth with him because <laughs> he just, yeah, you know, yeah. out, outpaces us so he'll be he'll be just fine for retirement he's 74 he's living his best life right now he made an amazing amount of money in the stock market last year um and so he'll he'll be just fine my parents on the other hand i i'm honestly not 100 percent sure i couldn't even tell you what their retirement plans look like like i mentioned it's just kind of taboo they didn't they didn't talk about it so i mean there was who knows? I mean, even to this day, I don't feel like I have a good enough relationship with them to even ask, like, what What are your plans? How are you going to fund this? Are you going to start selling stuff off? Or do you have savings that we don't know about? Like, it just it's just kind of very taboo with them. Yeah. No, thanks for asking or answering. I was just curious because we talked to a, a couple people when Jason a few months ago or a couple months ago and talked about it on the intro to the show about how that's kind of an unknown for a lot of people in, in their retirement or in their future is are they going to have to help cover for their parents yeah. and cover for their parents' health care. So just curious. Uh, let me just jump back to your to your kids. And, and I know you're recently married, been married about five years. Is that right? Uh, we just celebrated eight years of marriage. Oh, eight years. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So. Sorry. I- I'm curious at all. Did money have any say or influence into when you guys decided to have children, or not at all? No, I I would not say that it that it did. Um, I I feel like we were maybe a little bit later in life when we went to have kids. In the grand scheme of things, I was. 29 and my husband he's about seven years older than me so he was you know late 30s when we finally decided that we were going to have kids what what more so was helpful was that we were both established with our careers so I felt like I had more seniority at work and I was able to you know kind of not feel that pressure to to get back to work or they were at least able to work with me a little bit more I feel like maybe if I would have had kids super young I would have probably just felt overwhelmed like I couldn't juggle a professional career and kids but it it kind of worked out in our favor for the, the time of when we had kids, uh, my husband was in the military, and so the military kind of moved us around to a few different towns that were lower cost of living than where we live now. And I don't know if you guys have kids or have had to pay to put them in daycare, but I mean, it, it costs an arm and a leg. So fortunately with us, you know, putting them in a daycare in some of these lower cost of living areas, it was much cheaper than what we would pay, you know, nowadays if my husband wasn't staying at home with them. Yeah, no, I was just curious because I think for some people that is, you know, money is a factor and for a lot of people it's not at all. So I just kinda, I want to ask that more on the show because I think it differs from couple to couple and it's yeah. just interesting to hear. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a valid question. When I see younger kids maybe like having kids, I, I do wonder like how, how do you afford that? And I think more of them are probably closer to family and have family able to help. But my husband and I don't, we don't live anywhere near our families. And so we don't really have any sort of support system like that where somebody could, you know, help out or watch kids. So it's kind of just us on our own with it. And so I, I definitely sure. think if we, you know, had family around or maybe a, a parent that was going to be a, a babysitter for us or something like that, but that just wasn't our, our circumstances at the time. So. Yeah. Did you, your husband stays at, at home full time now? He does now. He um, finished up his career in the military. And um, about the time that 
he got out, the boys were um, around three years old. So we just made a plan that he would stay home with them until they were school age. And then what he actually does is he uses his GI Bill, which is a benefit that he earned from his years of service in the military. So he's a full-time student um, at the same time that he stays home with the boys um, so that he can pull down that um, GI Bill benefit, which, oh, very, you know, it, very cool. yeah, I mean, it's it's not going to, you know, make us quad millionaires, but it definitely pulls in a little bit extra, <laughs> extra cash yeah, each year. Yeah. So I'm like, well, I, I, yeah, no, sorry to interrupt you. I was just going to say, I think you are, Jace, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you're the first couple that we've talked to where the, where the wife works full time and the husband stays at home. Is that right, Jace? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Props to you guys. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> are you guys on the... Go ahead. Sorry. I was, I was going to say we're making it work. It was a little bit scary for me when, you know, COVID hit and work sent us home to work. I was like, no, you, you can't send me home to work. <laughs> like my, <laughs> my, my kids are home. Like I can't go home. Yeah. But they were like, no, like we're shutting the office, like go home to work. And so, um, you know, we've I've literally been working from home for the last nine months now with my kids here. But he does a great job. I mean, he's a he's a much better dad than I am a mom. So he, he's just a giant <laughs> big kid himself. So, I mean, was I, that, was is that the plan at first or it just kind of happened? It just kind of happened that way as far as timing for when he was going to get out of the military. So it just worked out that way, you know, five years ago before we even had the boys, like he, he would not have told you that he was going to be a stay at home dad. And I never thought that I would, I'm using air quotes here, but I never thought that I would allow my husband to stay at home. I always thought, you know, we both need to be bringing in an income. <laughs> we have to contribute equally, but now I just see such a huge benefit to that. I mean, my work can be very demanding with deadlines um, and travel, you know, when, when COVID's not an issue. Um, and so it's kind of nice to, to just have him here on, you know, on alert all the time with the kids so that I can kind of go and forge my way with my career. So, yeah, yeah. Well, good for you guys. So we talked a little bit, Danielle, about where you've been and where you are now. What does the future look like? Are there, are there net worth or financial goals or what about working? Do you want to retire early or is that not of interest? Where do you go from here? Yeah, uh, currently, I don't really think that I, I want to retire early. I'm sure I will. Um, what I'd probably like to do is, you know, work through at least once my, my kids are out of school, just to make sure that we've got a, a good buffer, you know, for all those, everybody keeps telling me, oh, you're so lucky, your kids are young, they get more expensive as they get older. So I just want to make sure that we've got a, you know, a good cushion for that. We don't really have any net worth goals per se, but it's just kind of interesting. I mentioned that we hit a, you know, a million dollars about a, I don't know, 12 or 14 months ago, and now we're already at a million three. So, I mean, in a, a little over a year, it went up $300,000. So it's kind of crazy to see the math work and to see how fast this is, this is growing. You know, that first million took, I don't know, eight years or something like that. And now it seems to be coming much faster. So, I mean, I should probably set a goal, but I don't know. We're just kind of living and saving and enjoying life. So we're going to try our hand at rental properties over this next year. So we're going to close on our first one here in a couple of days and see if we like that. And if we do, we'll acquire a couple more to add to the portfolio because I'd really like to, you know, have a couple paid off single family homes and see how, you know, that does for us. And it would give my husband um, something else to add to his plate and kind of manage and tinker with. And But yeah, we're just living life and loving it. Danielle, is there anything, you know, as it relates to maybe what we would consider some of the, you know, materialistic things that, that 
usually comes with wealth. I mean, you mentioned earlier some of the the new associates that, that join your firm, see the partners driving cars and houses and everything else. Is there anything like that in your life that, that you want down the road now or, or maybe even now that you've reached millionaire status and kind of have that ball rolling for yourself? Oh, yeah. When I when I think of the future, and this is much further down the road, but I I would envision like a lake house and a nice boat. I don't I don't feel like we have that kind of money right now. Like right now, it's almost like when I was, you know, growing up, I thought a million dollars was a lot. Now I kind of feel like, oh, this, you know, we're just getting started. Like we need much bigger wealth for this. But yeah, I would definitely like um, a nice lake house, a nice boat. I am a, a big entertainer, so I always want people to come over and feel welcome and, and all of that. So that's probably my my main goal for now. Maybe we'll have some some land um, in the future too, and a <clears throat> you know a bigger house and much much further down the road. If my kids get married or have you know kids of their own, it would it would just be nice to have a good um, place for everybody to to always be able to come home to. Yeah. Does the political environment? change the way that that you think about your investments or building wealth or do you pay attention to that at at all yeah i mean it doesn't it doesn't change it because at the end of the day as long as you're not selling like if you can write out you know whatever it it throws at you it's it's interesting to see how it does impact the investments or what the stock market is doing <clears throat> and i feel like here kind of lately the stock market's off doing its own thing even though you know it doesn't really correlate with maybe unemployment or what's what's really happening in you know most of america so it's one of those things to kind of note and pay attention to but it doesn't necessarily change my strategy like i didn't you know change my investment balances or my portfolio leading up to the election uh, so it's it's more so just a just a kind of keep it in mind and understand it so that I understand like what's happening in the world, but it's not necessarily something that keeps me up at night and causes me to shuffle funds from one place or the other, or change up an investment strategy. So let me just ask, I'm curious before we wrap up with some rapid fire questions here. Did you worry about money as, uh, as you started working? Did you worry about not having um, enough? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, shortly after I started working, I had bought a house and then I accepted a transfer to another um, city. And so I was juggling a mortgage payment plus a rent payment. And I mean, I was making $50,000 a year. Like what? <laughs> who who does that? Like that wasn't a very solid, you know, financial move on my end. And then, you know, there's been <laughs> other things that have come up too. like we moved quite a bit while my husband was in the military. And so that always involved um, I don't know, somehow we just weren't able to rent. So we always had to buy and that that is not a smart decision is to buy a house and then sell it two years later. And so plus, the military is telling you to move. So we were always forced to sell it. And we wouldn't always have it sold by the time we left that area. So I mean, that always stressed me out um, and caused me to to definitely worry. And so I think that could you ever keep those as rentals? Well, we we didn't at the time because we didn't want to have to um, we, we just didn't want to mess with it. Like the the towns that we were leaving were not towns like, oh, we'll come back here sometime or this will be our retirement house. Instead, it was right. like, no, we need to get this sold so we can get our cash back out of it and close this chapter and move on to the next thing. But yeah, I mean, I'm an, I'm, I'm self-admit that I'm a, a worrier. So it's definitely something that you work hard for your money. I mean, you work lots of hours to bring home a paycheck and I don't just want it to, to fritter away. I want it to work as hard as possible and, and be as optimized as possible so that we don't, 
you know, have nothing to show for it at the end of our working life. Yeah. So t- to that point, what's your risk tolerance and, and has it shifted through the years as the net worth has grown? Have you become, have you been more willing to take risks or less risk because you want to hold on to the capital? Yeah, I'm definitely more willing to take risks because I finally have figured out that we've, it'll, it'll come back. Like if it goes down, it's going to come back. Like it's, it's going to be replenished. If I got laid off or I got fired, I'll, I'll be able to find more gainful employment. Like there's just not such a doomsday approach to it. And we also feel like we're, we have time on our side as far as age goes. So yeah, we're much more willing to be aggressive or take risks now and, you know, let this play out. Like with this rental house, for example, I I was terrified. I've spent the last two or three years, like, like overanalyzing, oh, we should get into rentals. Should we get into rentals? We shouldn't. Like we're moving or this, that, or the other. And I finally just had to say, you know what? We're just going to do it. What's the worst that could happen? I mean, the worst that could happen is we buy a rental and nobody moves into it. And maybe, you know, we don't make any income off of it, but at least we'll have a house. So yeah, I think now with a larger net worth, it's almost like I feel more, I feel more comfortable like taking some of those risks because I feel like, okay, I've got, I've got the backing behind me and this will replenish. And, you know, we've got 30 years to go before we're ready to start drawing down on any of this. Yeah. Yeah. An awesome job. I mean, congrats. You've done it from such a young age. So obviously that helps too. So as you look back at your journey here, over a million dollars in net worth, are there a few things that you could point to and say, hey, that's what made me successful. That's what made me get there. Yeah, I would definitely say that cash flowing my way through college was a was a huge help. I mean, it gave me a huge leg up um, once I got through college to to not have to. They call your twenties the lost decade because you spend a couple of years going to school and then after that you have to pay back your student loans and then you kind of do all that to get back to zero by the time you're thirty. I didn't really have that. I didn't come out of college with a hole, so I was able to, you know, start heavily investing with my 401k and chunking money aside in a taxable brokerage. So I would say that that was a big thing too. The other thing is that I've got a I've got a good career with with good pay raises, so that has that's always helped as well. I think sometimes people maybe get in a, a stagnant career or a job that offers a two or three uh, percent cost of living adjustment, but raises in public accounting have always um, been pretty favorable. Uh, it's a lot of hours and it, it's a lot of work, as you guys both know. But at least on the compensation side, it feels like it starts to pay off. Yeah, and you know where you're going to be. Right. Yeah, that's true. If you yeah. perform well. Yeah. Um. So so great. Let's let's wrap up with some rapid fire questions here. You've been really generous with your time. So appreciate that. How old were you when you became a millionaire? Thirty two years old. So we hit it last November, uh, November of 2019. So I was 32 years old. Sorry, I'm asking a, a woman her age there. I just realized. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's totally fine. <laughs> OK, if you're if you're comfortable uh, answering these these next couple, what's your household annual spending? Yeah, so it's about 40 to last year it was about 40 to $50,000. So for calendar year 2020 it was about 40 to 50. Obviously that's going to be a little bit lower cuz COVID was kind of unusual with, you know, sending everybody home to work and you didn't have to do, you know, some of the the normal work expenses like tolls or lunches or, you know, upkeep on wardrobe, sure. etc. So I mean, yeah, yeah. Th- when I when I tallied it up for 2020, um overall spending, just spending not m- counting money sent to investments or, you know, principal pay down on the mortgage, it was right around um $40,000. But I 
again, that's, you know, pretty low. And I feel like it would probably in a normal year be closer to maybe like 50. And then as the boys get older, I would expect that to go up as well once they're in more activities and do things other than just, you know, yeah. run around. So. Yeah, yeah, it's good for a family of four. So how much of the 40 to 50, I'm just curious, is the house payment? Well, our our uh, mortgage payment is twelve hundred dollars a month. So it that but that's principal and interest only. So the number I gave you doesn't include that because I would consider mortgage principal uh, more of a savings. And our goal is to be mortgage free within a couple years. I mean, we're paying it off, but we're not like hyper um, hyper paying it off. So we're we're trying to pay okay. it off quickly. But I mean, it's probably still going to be seven to ten years for us to pay yeah, off the yeah. mortgage. Okay. Um, what's been your range of annual household income? Oh, that's a great question. So you have to consider too, that at one point my husband worked and not only did he work outside the home, but he worked for the military and a large part of their pay is considered, um, an allowance. So while they don't necessarily make, you know, huge salaries, the, the amazing benefit to military pay is that it's not all taxable. So I think probably 2019, his last year in the military was his highest year of salary. And so his salary plus mine uh, was just a little over $200,000. But I mean, my starting salary coming out of, you know, coming out of college was just just under 50. Um, So that's probably not a very good range. But last year it was it was between 150 and 200 for the whole household. No, yeah, that's good. You started yeah, 50 to a couple hundred. Good for you guys. Able to grow quick. What's been the most expensive meal out that you or your husband or both you personally paid for? Oh, probably nothing too crazy. Maybe like a hundred bucks or 150 bucks with some friends, but we're, I'm not a huge fan of going out to eat. I just, I don't know. I, I eat out a ton with, with clients and conventions and stuff like that. Yeah. So I kind of, kind yeah, of feel like you eat out a lot in, in public yeah, <laughs> kind of feel like when I'm done traveling or at the end of a work week, I'm like, can we please just have a ham sandwich like at the table? So, right, right. yeah. So what's been worth the money to you along this journey? Is there stuff um, you've been, you spent more money on? Yeah, I don't know. We're not, we're not car people. We're not toy people. We've got a, a modest home right now. I mean, I'm, I'm, we're not like hyper frugal. Like I think when you get in the financial independence realm, you get a lot of people that, you know, sell their cars and want to ride bikes. And, you know, we're, we're not quite there. We're somewhere in the middle. You know, we're not real flashy, extravagant people. We're just kind of everyday millionaire head down. Just, you know, you probably wouldn't even, no, we were millionaires. If you saw us in a crowd, we just kind of blend in with everybody. But yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. we what about had travel? Many, it's funny you ask that. So we had we had some trips planned for 2020 because um, we finally felt like okay, the boys are old enough. Like traveling with you know two and three year olds um, is, is not vacation. So <laughs> we haven't done too much travel, but it was definitely on our list for things to to tackle last year. And then COVID kind of wiped that out. So we're kind of waiting on that to subside, and then we'll you know, get, get everything going again. So we don't really have any crazy travel lined up right now. What does it mean to be happy or fulfilled to you? And and has the money and the net worth growth along the way, has that contributed to, to being more happy or more, more fulfilled in life? Oh, great question. I honestly think that the more our net worth has grown, the more we've just learned to be content. Like there's no, chasing the Joneses or comparison to other people. Like we just kind of stay in our own lane. We're just simple folk that are happy with what we have and appreciative of it. Cause we obviously realize like this could be 
taken away or a health scare could happen. Or, you know, my husband did a couple tours um, of Iraq and Afghanistan. And so, I mean, he easily could have lost a limb or lost his health. And so we just try to be content with, you know, with what we have. And I think that's where a lot of people, a lot of people struggle is they think, oh, I'll just get to this million or, oh, I'll get to 1.5 and then I'll be happy. And you really just have to learn to enjoy the journey along the way. Like there's just not a magic bullet that says, when you wake up tomorrow and you have a million dollars or a paid off home that you're suddenly going to be happy. Like you really just have to learn to be content with, with the journey and, and not assuming that you can just flip it on once you reach the destination. Yeah. Really good answer. Well, let's end it there. We'll end on that. That was really good. So appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for spending your time with us tonight and, and 1.3 million awesome jobs. So thanks again. All right. Thanks guys. Have a good night. Thanks, Danielle. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.